You are listening to the OneOfUs.net Podcast Network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. It's been a hot minute since I've had John Golson here in the studio, but it is certainly good to have you back. Hello? Where where am I? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. What is this place? Said, uh, uh, Steve, take the blindfold off. Okay. Yeah, there, there you go. You oh, can see now. it's digital noise. It's digital noise. Oh, hey. okay. Welcome All back, right. John. Hey. I don't think we need those handcuffs, do we, Do we, Steve? Okay, thanks. Thanks, Jay. Take those off. Here. Uh, oh, man. There you go. You need to rub your wrists now for a I second? I can do the wave properly. <laughs> and dab. <laughs> I can dab now. All these things I couldn't do before. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've been busy lately, because uh, last time we were on here, we talked about the movie that you have out currently that is playing the rounds in various cities. I think that was it, though. I think I think it I think it's finally done. There's still like a floating Washington DC date. Okay. But I think that the I think that the world tour of make popular movies is finally over with. Aww. And they're they are pursuing uh how to get it out and available for people. Are you looking thinking more streaming or physical releases? Oh, I think there's gonna be both, but I can't speak to that. I'm not in that decision making process. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. You've already done your part. You're just waiting for your your points money to come in. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, and you've got a new new projects on the way. I mean, new you're going to stay on busy the way this summer. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Expect to see uh, Sir Doctor uh, John Golson and uh, appearing in the next Star Wars franchise. I assume. Oh yeah, I'm open to that. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> you're like I'm open to that. Yeah, I like, mean, I, I would consider it. Yeah. I'm one degree removed because, uh, as you well know, Chris, I did share the screen with Star Wars star Noah Segan. So, uh, <laughs> you did indeed. Yes. Um, so I do have that connection. How many scenes was he in in The Last Jedi? Like one. Okay. But it's a line because he's, he's, he's Ryan's right. Yeah. yeah. He's in everything Ryan Johnson does. Yeah. yeah. Although my favorite appearance by him is still in, in, uh, the last Daniel Craig movie, uh, uh, the glass onion where he's oh, just yeah. the stoner on the island everyone's like why is that guy even here i <laughs> love that anyway we got a bunch of blu-rays and 4ks to talk about this week uh some good some not so good you know how it goes but overall i think we had a pretty solid stack all pretty good and this fact, wasn't the this wasn't quite the random grab bag that it normally is everything no. was like of a certain quality. Yeah. I mean, like, there's stuff in here I'm not totally crazy yeah. about, but lots of people do like. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, I'm actually going to start with one that's by one of my favorite horror directors, um, Dario Argento, but is not one of my absolute favorites by him. Uh, Phenomena. It, it's a good looking film. It's got a Jennifer Connelly in her first on screen performance. Um, 
who's young and beautiful and has not quite figured out how to act yet. To be fair, she never thought she was going to be an actor. She was more like, well, I'm really kind of into modeling and singing. And she kind of went sideways into acting and eventually got good at it. She was not good at it yet at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But either way... um, I don't know. I mean, I like Phenomena. There's parts of it that are really good. There's, it's got Donald Pleasance, which is always a plus for me with horror films. And it's now available in 4K from Synapse, which they really put the work in to do a, a nice upgrade. I mean, it was not even a year ago they put this out in Blu-ray. And just recently before this, they had an even more bigger 4K version of it, like with more stuff included in the package. But yeah. <sighs> the the movie which gets into like psychic powers and stuff and really a kind of silly like like a morlock x-man psychic power there's a a all-girls school and there's a new girl at school and she has this she has this psychic ability to speak to insects and that's going on and also and also (laughs) yes and a killer is murdering people at the all-girls school and there's other elements and all, like, including like a lab monkey and all of these elements somehow come together in the most cartoonish fashion yeah. in the film's finale. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, she becomes friends because she starts sleepwalking. And when she's sleepwalking, she's visualizing what's happening through the eyes of the, these other women that are being killed. Uh, and then as, but she ends up like in the woods and she meets the chimpanzee who's like guides her by the hand. Cause that's what you do when you meet a chimpanzee in the woods, yeah. follow the chimpanzee. Back to his his dad's house, who is Donald Pleasance, who's a, a wacky insect scientist. What what are the odds uh-huh. that the girl who can talk to insects would end up at the house of the wacky insect yeah, scientist? I like how life works. Yeah, and who, in fact, his previous assistant was killed by the homicidal killer. Mm-hmm. So it's like, boy, it's almost like someone wrote this. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it's all too ridiculous, but it is really fun to watch. And Dario Argento shoots the shit out of it, like he usually does. Uh, Dario Nicolodi is in Dario Argento's ex-wife and and often co-conspirator in his movies is in here just long enough for you to go, uh huh. She's probably going to be more important towards the end because, of course, she is. She's Dario Nicolodi. <laughs> this always had really scary VHS box art when I was little. Yeah, which is like it was called Creepers. Back yeah, then. there's like mosquitoes like flying towards the viewer on the um. On the box art, and it's like it. It sounded like my my perception of it was always like, oh, it's this girl, and uh, she's controlling insects to kill, but she she maybe doesn't know it because she's sleepwalking, and like that's not what this movie's really about at no. all. Um, it was super silly, almost absurd. Uh, it's funny because I think that from its reputation. Uh, and how much love people have for Argento in a way that is like sometimes very biased. Mm. Uh, I thought it would be better than it was. <laughs> so this is your first time actually watching it's it. It's my first time to see it. I watched the international cut, by the way. Okay. Um, and it was my first time watching it. I did have fun with it. It's completely ludicrous and never scary. Uh, and I, th- and it gets a little macabre especially towards the end. But then a lot of that is counteracted with a lot of other like really absurd stuff as well. So right when it starts to get like, okay, that's kind of gross. Like uh, similar to like poltergeist, there's like a dive into like a pit of dead bodies and liquid. And it's like, that's really disgusting. Why is that there? And And, uh, and then that uh, whatever feelings of ickiness are pretty counteracted by how silly things continue to get. Yeah. It was very, it was very silly. Uh, 
I just I thought it would be more artful, but yeah. it's real. It's it's a really absurd movie. I completely concur. This is like it's well worth watching, especially if you're an Argento fan. But it is his most overrated film, a hundred percent. And I think partially just because it's got two of his biggest name, most recognizable names to American audiences starring in it yeah. of any of his films. Um, but yeah, I still have fun with it. It's got a great Goblin score. Still not again. No, nowhere near as good as the score for Deep Red or Suspiria or Tenebrae, but it's still like a really good score. Yeah, it's just one of those like of the like that the gold period for Argento. It's almost at the bottom, yeah. <laughs> but still in the gold period, you know. And there are three different versions here: the Italian version, the international version, and then there's like this totally super truncated Creepers cut that's like 86 minutes long. It's like that's like 30 minutes shorter than the other one. Don't watch that first. Yeah, I dug around online to see what people were recommending watch. Sometimes even director's cuts, people are like, don't mess with the director's cut, yeah. watch the theatrical first. This one, most everybody seemed to agree that International was the way to go, so that's yeah. the one I chose. Agreed. Uh, there are two discs of extra features here. There's audio commentaries, uh, two, uh, one on each, one by film historian Troy Howarth, uh, and one by uh, film buffs David Duvalli and Derek Bo- Botello. There's a 121-minute documentary called Of Flies and Maggots that has interviews with everybody except for, of course, Donald Pleasance and Jennifer Connelly. And the chimp. <laughs> and the chimp, yes. who gives lousy interview anyway. <laughs> so uh, there's Jennifer, a music video from the music composer for Jennifer's song in the movie. I know. I took. I got like 20 seconds into it before I was like, nope. Uh, there's a few pages in the Japanese press book. There's the three sarcophagi, 31 minute video essay, essay that talks about the movie and the differences between all three of the alternate versions. And then if you get the nicer edition, there's like a lot of stuff packaged, physical stuff packaged in with it. But yeah, I mean, like I said, well worth watching as a horror fan. It's one of those that for a lot of people like you, it's been on their bucket list. Like mm-hmm. I really should have watched this by yeah. now. And you, if you haven't, you, you probably should have watched this by now, but Temper your expectations a bit. I really like Suspiria is really the only one that I've consumed from start to start to finish. Oh, we've watched some we watched some giallos on here as well. So I, yeah. I can't remember what was the one with the art gallery where the person's murdered in the art gallery. Oh, the Stendhal syndrome. No, it's like it's an older one. In the beginning, there's oh um uh was it four four flies on gray velvet? Or, I, maybe so. I think so. Either that like, or bird with a crystal. The plumage. opening is like there's an art oh it's gallery. the bird with a crystal yeah, plumage. Yeah, bird, yeah, yeah. The, yeah and I like well, the person from outside is watching. Yeah, it I liked that one. Uh, Deep red. When I see images of Deep Red, I'm always like, I or clips from Deep Red. I'm always like, I want to watch that movie. Chris, let me tell you, I've tried watching that movie like three times. I don't know what it is about the pacing of that movie that I cannot get past the midway point. It's, and I started again, and I can't get past the midway point. It's the first half of it is a slog, but it gets so much better after that. I think and, I need to see it in a movie theater where I have no choice yeah. but to be, like, prisoner to this movie. I mean, the then, best like, thing about Deep Red, though, is still the score. The score is just a complete nutter banger. But, like, the, the movie takes a while to get going. Suspiria, on the other hand, is from start to finish. Complete banger. Like, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. Uh so I, it's weird. This week I kind of preloaded our show with, I think, the two titles that I was most tentative about. Like, yeah, like that one. And then a recent theatrical release that we reviewed on the site, Cocaine Bear, Cocaine which Bear. some people genuinely liked. I, t- I, I work at a movie theater. I have talked to these people and seen them coming out having a good time. Here's the deal. These same people who may have been like, man, that's the most fun I had in a the theater in a while. I'm going to buy that when it comes out on Blu-ray. 
Get ready for a very different experience watching it at home by yourself, sans lots of alcohol and friends, <laughs> than you would have in the theater. Because the bad news is Cocaine Bear is really not that good of a movie. The good news is it's probably better than it has a right to be still. It's still kind of cute. It's got stuff for real horror fans. Like a lot of films like this kind of skimp on the horror elements of it. This one is like, you're going to get some gore. It is gory. And this cut of it is a little gorier than the theatrical version that came out as well. I mean, not spectacularly. So, I mean, if you live on this planet, you're probably familiar with the film by now because they marketed it. They, they must've spent more money on marketing than they did on the film itself. Yeah. I mean, it was just inescapable and, and for good, I get it. Like it's only once every, Maybe 10 years Hollywood has a product like this that's this intentionally overtly dumb that they're like, but we're going to play this card now. Like the last time was probably Snakes on a Plane, where it's like, we know this is dumb, but we're going to throw all this money at it and see what happens. Yeah. This was, this was the movie of this decade that they did it with the modern Snakes on a Plane. Uh, and you know, the plot is inherent with the title. It's a bear and he's on cocaine. And you know what? He kind of likes it. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. It was, uh, it was not, uh, I think the film comes to life for, there's, okay, let me back up. There is a, there is a story here. It takes the real life story of these guys are smuggling drugs. The plane was going down because of the weight. They ended up throwing a bunch of the cocaine off the side and a bear got into it. And in real life, I think it was kind of anticlimactic. They just shoot the bear. Like yeah. they, the bear well, it, died. it just and died. And, okay. it, yeah. and this movie tacks on another story about kids getting lost in the woods and they're looking for the kids while the bear is going on the rampage. And, you know, and there's a lot of like characters who are almost all, they all have the feel of like neighbors from failed sitcoms. Yeah. It's sort of like, yeah. like all like a, a cast of dozens of neighbors from failed sitcoms <laughs> um, who all have like some weird personality quirk or idiosyncrasy to try to, instead of like actual characterization, it's like, Oh, this guy talks kind of weird or this guy does this. Um, it's a lot of people who are like, they're na- like I said, neighbors from failed sitcoms or people who had their shot had their moment where it looked like they were going to be big and it just never happened. <laughs> there's a part where the movie comes alive and it kind of sucks because it sort of lets you know what the movie could be if it were different. Yeah. And it's the par- all the paramedic sequence. It's there's a there's like a probably in total maybe 3 to 4 minute sequence involving uh paramedics and the bear that hits this crazy kind of giddy gore comedy thing that it's going for but then that's like the only time that that really happens that way yeah and and i think a movie like that especially if they're going to take a lot of liberties with the true story which they already are doing i i my hope was that it would continue to then start to deliver greater and greater gore gag stuff all the way to some big finale yeah but really that's it ends up being like a tease like that's what you get and then the rest of it is just kind of like very middle of the road drug jokes, uh, and and again like very almost like sitcommy writing. Yeah, and um, I actually expected better from Elizabeth Banks as a director here. Uh, yeah. I would have thought that when the when you get her and she is kind of a big deal both as an actress and as a director to a get, you think she would have been like, okay, let's do some more work on this script. But it does it. 
it's definitely better than your normal movies that would be called Cocaine Bear that would come out direct to video. You know, your your Asylum productions. Oh, they're already are. starting. There's Crackcoon. Yeah. Oh yeah, I can't believe they didn't go with Wrathcoon. I was like, Wrathcoon, <laughs> yeah. it's right there. There's uh, already a shark. <laughs> there's already a cocaine shark. Coming. Yeah, yeah. There's a yeah. whole variety of of like. There's like a meth coon as well for some reason. I don't know what the yeah. yeah. Um yeah, a lot of this is their actors are like you. I feel bad watching in this cuz you could do better. And it's like Carrie Russell plays one of the leads. I'm like you you do you are just high profile enough still as an actress that you shouldn't be in cocaine. You have a bunch there. of people operating on different frequencies too in that yeah. acting where it's like you have people playing really really broad and you have people just like phoning it in. You have people taking it seriously. There's a and it really it really kind of screws with the tone sort of and it it yeah because it, it can't really yeah i i don't uh i felt bad like i you know the old saying like i pissed in your cheerios like <laughs> i felt bad because i was talking to people about watching it or people were mentioning it to me when it you know because it is new on home video and having to say like i didn't really like it and people going oh, you didn't really like it really uh, people like, said the same shit to me like at the theater they'd be like so did you like cocaine bear i'm like um i had to learn how to phrase it right so i didn't get in trouble i'd be like you know what it wasn't really for me but everyone else i know seems to love it yeah you know it's like i really did not think it was very good but it has some moments it has the problem with it is there's so many things about this you're like why isn't this better like you've got a solid cast of those type actors you got yeah. alden Aaron Reich, who we all thought was going to be huge by now, just never happened. O'Shea Jackson Jr., again, an actor, and we were all like, oh, dude, that guy's going to be gigantic. Nope, he's just kind of hovered about this level. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., um, Margot Martindale, who is that, you know, the the by definition, the television neighbor, but also is one of those actresses who's won Emmys, who's fantastic. Yeah. No, she's good. She's um, good. And then Ray Liotta, and I believe what was his last screen role, it was. sadly. And he's barely in it. You know, he comes in with a very last minute type of thing, and you're like, okay. And it's like, you expect that this is going to be, a, like, they're going to build him up to be this guy who desperately needs punishing. Yeah. And he's just... Cocaine bear versus Chantix human. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there are some extra features here. There's an alternate ending. There's a gag reel. Uh, there's about four and a half minutes of deleted and extended scenes. There's a nine and a quarter minute. Uh, <laughs> All roads lead to Koki, the making of Cocaine Bear. Uh, there's unbearable bloodbath, dissecting the kills. Uh, there's doing lines, <laughs> which is the cast reading lines from it. And the audio commentary with uh, the Elizabeth Banks and the producer discussing the film. I mean, honestly, if you're going to watch this film, don't try and do it on your own. Don't just do it at home with a quiet evening over dinner. This is the movie that really the only way you wanted to see it was with a bunch of drunken friends who are like already half in the can by the time you start it. Yeah. That's the the way you're going to enjoy it. I mean, otherwise, I would just give it a pass. Now, going on to my theory that I am slowly getting handed titles from a parallel timeline. Uh, there's one of them in this stack as well this, this week. We had, I forget what the other one was recently. There was, a, uh, oh, it was the Grand Tour with Jeff Daniels, David Twohy, like his first directed film. Okay. I was like, what? This movie doesn't exist. I would have known about this movie. I'm like, okay, we're having a Berenstein, Berenstein bear crossover here. Cause I'm telling you that movie didn't exist. And I feel the same way about this new arrow release of the, uh, 1969 movie, The Assassination Bureau. Uh. I'm like, there's no way I didn't know this movie existed. <laughs> there's no way that people don't regularly talk about this movie in just in 
as a normal thing. Yeah, everybody saw this movie growing up, right? Right? But no, it has slipped into our time stream, and now it is here. And you can go back and, yes, Wikipedia has been written around it, so you look and say, oh, there's the whole history around it and everything. No, it's always been there. I don't believe it. It's hard to make a comedy about assassinations <laughs> after JFK was killed. It's true, and and our and uh and MLK and like our slew of assassinations that took place in the sixties. Well, I mean, even funnier. This so this was originally an idea by Sinclair Lewis, the famous writer, yeah, who then sold it to the writer Jack London, who who developed it uh, further, and then years and years later, uh, somebody else like named like Robert L. Frog or something like that finished off the the book. Uh, and the book was primed to be, cause everyone was like, this is great stuff. First off, you got those two names associated with it. And then it's a really great story. We're going to make so much money off this. And <laughs> this movie about the comedy, a book about assassins came out the year that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So nobody wanted to read it. However, the studios were like, okay, but that was just bad timing. But what we're going to do is we're going to buy the option, the rights to this. We're going to make a movie with some big stars. We're going to spend a bunch of money on it. We're going to spend a bunch of money on a wide release. And then everyone will see how brilliant this is. So a couple of years later, they prepped this whole thing for release. And Robert Kennedy and MLK are assassinated. <laughs> They're like, fuck! Yeah. That's at least the excuse that Wikipedia has come up with of why I've never heard of the Assassination Bureau and you've never heard of the Assassination Bureau. So for the listeners who haven't heard of the Assassination Bureau, the plot of it is there is a secret society of people who carry out assassinations. You can come to them and be like, I want this person killed. And if they, they investigate the person, they find that you have good standing and reason to have that person killed morally then they will they do have a code then they will get together and assassinate that person the the twist thing that happens in the beginning of this movie that's really cool is diana rigg comes to oliver reed who kind of is the de facto leader of this assassination bureau and says i want you assassinated he kind of thinks like oh well i do deserve to die because i've been killing people so morally our our laws for determining are true i do deserve to die so he challenges the other members of the assassination bureau to then, uh, like, basically, like, try to kill me. Like, <laughs> she's paying us to kill me, so everyone try to kill me, and people are trying to kill him. And then it kind of, like, weaves into this conspiracy involving, like, World War One, Yeah. Um, like, yeah. a greater fabric of a conspiracy. It reminded me a hell of a lot of, like, a Mark Miller comic. Yeah. Like, Wanted or... Uh, uh, What's the other one I'm not thinking of? Uh, Kingsman. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like a proto-wanted, proto-Kingsman. Well, that see- sort of, like, secret societies. Or John and, Wick. And tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> yeah, tongue-in-cheek uh, British humor, sort of, as well. Yeah. I mean, Oliver Reed is is very funny, which is unusual to see him play a kind of funny role here. He's intense, but funny. And, of course, he and Diana Rigg end up sort of on the same side, more or less. I mean, it's like a... Um, you know, it's a romantic caper film. They're together, but she's like, oh, I don't want to. No, I mean, I, uh, yeah. uh, and like the thing is, he's like, yeah, I mean, like the, he's a kind of a for this whole thing shutting down anyway, because he said, you know what? We got away from our code. We, we like, we're not sticking to the code anymore. We're just taking, we're just doing it for the money. And this shit has to, we need to reboot this thing from the ground up. So he's like, great. I'm going to kill all you assassins before you can kill me. Cause him, it's like, hey, man, this is, the, I'm getting paid to do what I probably should have been doing anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's delightful. It really is delightful. The only thing I wasn't crazy about is it's, it kind of is directed 
like live action co- Disney comedies from this same period. And so even though it's got like this sort of like edgy material and it's got a story that's interesting, there's something about the comic timing of stuff that reminded me of like late sixties, early seventies Disney. Yeah, which but I love didn't, that. Yeah, I, love I don't that. love it. Like as the much. Apple Dumpling gang yeah, shit. I, I love it. It's something about the rhythms of the edit and the way gags are staged and like what the camera cuts to and it's it it it's all like filmic rhythms that I was like, yeah, this is very much even though even though story wise is Disney wouldn't touch it with a ten foot pole. I'm like, it's directed like a live action Disney movie. Yeah, I I kept thinking of the TV show Wild Wild West. Yeah, is the only difference being whereas that one is sort of a western with like weird futuristic spy technology mixed into it. This one is an Edwardian type film with weird futuristic spy technology mixed into it. But it's basically the same type of beats and rhythms as that show and type of feel to it. Uh, and I loved that show growing up. I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> the Wild West, but there are super spies. Um, yeah. Uh, I would love to see this get remade. To oh, be completely honest. this is one of those films that you go, why hasn't it been remade by yeah. now? And maybe they're just afraid if they do, someone else prominent will be assassinated. <laughs> Um, yeah, I still highly recommend this. There are some issues, like, with the really great conception of the ending. It's a cool shit idea. It's like, wow, that's a, that's a huge thing you took on, and they do not have the budget to pull it off. It does not look good. But at the same time, you're like, okay, I can go with it only because it was a fun as shit idea. Uh, there's audio commentary with Kim Newman and Sean Hogan. There's a 20, I really recommend watching <laughs> the extra feature here, right film, wrong time, Matthew Sweet on the Assassination Bureau, which gets into all the stuff we, we were talking about. I was so about. excited because I was like, Matthew Sweet, I, I want to love somebody. <laughs> no, no. And I popped it on. I was like, damn it. No, <laughs> different Matthew Sweet. <laughs> I'm sure that guy was getting that for at least 10 years. Probably yeah. not so much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I highly recommend the Assassination Bureau. Check it out. Uh, and try and convince me that we are not, uh, you know, having a final crisis with another parallel universe. Because I any still other week, we this is like this is pick of the week material. Oh yeah, I think we, I, I'm not sure. I will put a pin in it, but I, any yeah. other week, like this, would definitely be pick of the week. So, listeners, keep that in mind as we move forward. So you didn't see this one, um, um, but I'm just going to briefly touch on. They finally finished on HBO's uh, His Dark Material uh, uh, series, the yeah. third season, based on the Philip Pullman trilogy. Of I read books. the books. I started the first season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a little, just a little too dry. I thought, and I thought some of the casting was a little funky. It's a very, but it's, it was a little more dry than I wanted it to. It's be. a very BBC production. Yeah, and the second season even more so. Um, it definitely felt like it was suffering from budget issues. A certain amount of like, well, let's meander over to this less expensive area for a while. There's a lot of stuff that takes place in the second season on real Earth. Yeah, have you read the book? We, uh, yes, I have okay. read the books. I want to read the new ones that are out, which yeah. I actually hear are quite good as well. But anyway, the third season is the most banger of the seasons. It's like, first off, the big stars are actually in it more, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like a James McAvoy actually is dominantly in this season where he's not in the first two. Yeah. Um, and it comes to a really solid ending. It's a lot of shit going on. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and it's relatively short getting through the whole thing. You know, it's not one of those. 22 episodes a season show, you know? Um, 
I like, I'm always going to like it too. Cause I love, it's the only fantasy series for atheists Yeah, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, the problem is, uh, the whole God thing. He, who never actually appears. They've got the voice of God. Metatron is sort of the main villain of the whole series. Uh, the final fight is sort of humans versus Metatron in this. Um, sort of that being metaphorical of like, it's irrelevant whether or not there actually is a God. The problem is all the people who t- think they're talking with the voice of God. Uh, so if that is your leaning, maybe you should check out his dark materials and you'll have as delightful a time, uh, cackling evilly at o- the organized religion as I did watching these. But there are no b- bonus features at all on the Blu-ray releases, which is becoming more and more normal for home TV releases. I'm not quite entirely sure why. And also because of the way that things have been, they've been yanking TV shows left and right from streaming services. I will be shocked if this is going to be on Max for all that long because it's an IP, which means they like that they don't own. So yeah. it means they're going to have to keep paying royalties uh, every time somebody watches it, basically. So if you do want to see this, I would go ahead and do it now or, you know, prepare to buy these Blu-rays because um, uh, that's these soon may be the only way you can see it. Anyway, his dark materials. Yes. Three seasons. I think we're seeing. So we got a whole series of, uh, of three films from Warner Brothers that got a really solid upgrade into 4K. And these are three films that are definitely considered to be among the, the bright shining gems in Warner Brothers collection. You know, that it's like, you know, the Beatles White album every couple of years. These are going to get re-released in whatever the newest format is. And now they're, they're getting released in 4K. We're going to start off with the Maltese Falcon, the, Humphrey Bogart film that people often accidentally think is Casablanca, <laughs> which is the better film, by the way, still Casablanca, but uh, only because this was filmed around around the same time and shares a lot of the same cast members. And it's a but it couldn't be a more different type of movie. This is actually John Huston's directorial debut in 1941, based on a 1930 Dashiell Hammett no- novel. Which I have not read. I can't comment on the comparison, but it's Humphrey Bogart as private investigator Sam Spade and Mary Astor as his femme fatale client Gladys George with, uh, Peter Laurie and Sidney Greenstreet, uh, co-starring. Uh, and it's, he's a San Francisco private detective. It's a lot of dealing and double dealing with people coming in and like saying one thing, but the truth is something else. What is the actual truth? Well, Spade is, of the detectives, the classical private detectives, by far the meanest. Like, he's a dick. Yeah. But it's how being a dick is why he, how he gets things done. And, uh, you, you watch surprisingly for this period of time, Bogart plays him uh, to the hilt as the dick character is really a completely unsympathetic guy. But, one of those at the end, you're like, oh, he really is the smartest one in the room. And yes, everybody else is considerably more evil than he is. So I guess we'll give it a pass. <laughs> and they're all these people are searching after a jewel encrusted falcon statuette that has been painted over with like black paint to cover up its worth that is floating around somewhere. And everybody thinks everybody else knows where it is. And he's kind of playing both sides against the middle, trying to himself find his way to the end of this game. And yes, it's considered absolute classic of film noir. I'll tell you, John, this is my third time seeing it. And I'm still not as sold on it as the whole rest of the world is. High five. Oh, you too. I think it's so boring. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair <laughs> and, enough. And it, it's, it makes me feel like a Philistine to say that. Cause I realize like 
Oh, it's a, it's a classic of cinema. There's a lot of old movies I like from the same period. Yeah. I, this is the second time I've seen Maltese Falcon. I find it stupefyingly boring. I just don't understand why anyone thinks this is better than The Big Sleep, which I think is a hundred times better than The Maltese Falcon. Yeah. And also stars Humphrey Bogart and also is about a classic private detective. Big Sleep is just so much better of a film. This is okay. It's okay. It's, it's good. I mean, it's good. It's just, I would never for myself list it as one of my favorites, you know? Yeah. I don't even know that I, I find it hard to even say that it's, it's, I guess it's good. It's like objectively good. You're right. <laughs> I just, this movie, I, I can't get into it. I don't know why. I mean, everybody has those, I guess, but mm-hmm. it makes me feel like such a dumb dummy to be like, <laughs> oh, it's old, black and white. It's like, I'm, I promise you it's not that. It's just, it just doesn't get its hooks in me. And I, I start getting pretty, I start checking out in, it's probably 20 minutes in. It's after his partner's killed and he has a <coughs> conversation with his partner's wife. And then from there, it's like a steep decline into a series of conversations with characters I don't know for the preceding final hour and 15 minutes of the movie. And it's like, it's just sort of an interconnected, like scene to scene to scene series of conversations with people. I, I find it so boring. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's me. I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't even like, I, I don't even think I could give something like this a star rating or anything like that because yeah. it's a case of like, like, I get it. I get it. It's a classic. It's iconic. I get it. But not every movie is for everybody. Yeah. And this one was not, it's, I really wish I was one of the people this was more for because everything about it screams, yes, this is a movie Chris would normally adore. Yeah. I love Humphrey Bogart and Humphrey Bogart movies. I love Dashiell Hammett and, and, uh, private detective movies, especially from this period. Um, uh, it's just a, a fantastic cast. Oh, why shouldn't I love John Huston movies? What What's wrong with me? I don't like this one as much. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I'd be curious to know if anybody else has a shared experience with this one. And it's like we can form some sort of club or something. Like we're missing part of our brain that makes it why we don't understand why this is held up as the classic it is. I mean, it's fine. You should see it. See if because I know plenty of people who disagree with me completely. Yeah. But yeah. John and I are the founders of this Why Do Y'all Like the Maltese Falcon So Much Club. <laughs> yeah, start a Facebook group. Uh, but there's no denying that this is a, they did a massive upgrade because I had the previous Blu-ray edition and this is a huge step up in quality for 4K as often is the case with black and white films. Often the, the 4K upgrade is the most notable of like, wow, that just pops like crazy. Um, and there is an audio commentary on the 4K disc by the, by a Bogart, uh, biographer, Eric Lacks. And then the previous, um, edition, the Blu-ray edition extra features. There's a, there's a small assortment here of, uh, extra stuff and documentary things, both about Humphrey Bogart's film history and this film itself. The other one, the, the, I think the, the one I enjoyed the most of the three new, uh, Warner Brother 4Ks releases here was Cool Hand Luke from 1967 with, um, uh, why am I blanking on his name? Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Thank you. Which is funny because the first time I saw this movie, it was probably about 10 years ago. I was like, eh, it's all right. I like it. But, you know, this time I was like, oh, I totally get this movie now. This movie is really connecting with me and I'm loving the hell out of it. Um, I did not really piece together the whole Christ 
uh, sub- subtext that is very strong here the first time that this time I was like, oh yeah, there's completely a cool hand Luke as Christ subtext. That's, I can't believe I missed it. It's not subtle <laughs> at all with like crucifixion sequences and everything, you know? Um, but yeah, it's a prison drama directed by Stuart Rosenberg. Uh, Paul Newman is a, a guy who gets sent to prison over something stupid. He's like, he's a decorated World War II veteran. Uh, he like is drunk and he cuts off the heads of a bunch of parking meters and given two years in a chain gang. You're like, that was dumb. There's no reason for you to go, go to jail. You're just a dumbass. And, uh, you know, it's like jail would be back then. It's not exactly sticking to the rules on any level, anyone, including the prison guards themselves. And there's a pecking order with George Kennedy playing the tough at the top of the order, who at first is sort of the villain. And then eventually when he sees the kind of guy that, uh, that Luke is not only kind of phrases his, na- uh, coins his name, cool hand Luke, but is, really respects him and looks up to him as like, you know, almost like his older brother type of thing Um, where Luke is constantly just plays it very, very cool, whatever he's doing, but he does crazy shit too. Even in jail, like he goes into an egg eating contest for reasons I'm not entirely clear on, but it is a undeniably an iconic as hell sequence. And this film's filled with, uh, actors who are like, oh man, you recognize like everyone in this movie you've seen in westerns and any number of other things, you know. Yeah, there's a baby Dennis Hopper in there. Somewhere. Oh yeah, I think it might have been his first film. Yeah. Or one, no, no, I'm sorry. The other one we're watching, I think, is his first film. But, um, uh, Clifton James, uh, Struther Martin, Morgan Woodward, uh, the, Charles Tyner, the, just like uh, all these people who are like character actors from this period who are playing these great, wonderfully drawn characters uh harry dean stanton in a very early role for him joe don baker just lots and lots of them and um yeah i thought this was delightful it is really good oh wow we've been on the same page 100 percent this week when when will this streak end <laughs> it was it was really good um it's it's got an interesting shape as a movie if i can get like weirdly like film classy about it uh <laughs> It's got an interesting shape because it is sort of wide open and relaxed for most of the movie to the point that it kind of makes you think that the movie is not necessarily going to be about anything, that it's just going to be sort of a hangout movie because it kind of stays at the same sort of like ambling pace and, and you're just kind of hanging out with these, with these prisoners for most of the runtime and it really doesn't draw into sharp focus until like the last 30 minutes of the movie where they really start to, you know, if you think of something that's shaped like a funnel and it's wide at the top and narrow at the bottom, it kind of, the movie's sort of shaped like that. I realize I sound like a crazy person, right <laughs> but it's like, it it's very relaxed and very wide open for a good portion of its time. And it kind of narrows to like a laser precision yeah. where it's like the points it wants to make and the things that it wants to say are all all sort of like the whole reason you've been ambling along for the first hour is so that things can draw to a to a point in the final thirty minutes, or and so. it really does. Um, yeah, it becomes quite exciting. Yeah, I I really like this. You know, one of my favorite movies of all time is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And oh, it's yeah. interesting to see, uh, perhaps. Well, this came out in what sixty nine or something. Uh, I want to say it's sixty seven. Sixty seven. Yeah, sixty seven. You know. I've read the book Cuckoo's Nest, uh, which I can't remember when that came out, but they were already staging 
productions of Cuckoo's Nest in like 69 or 70 when Kirk Douglas was playing uh, the Jack Nicholson role mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, but it reminded me a lot of Wonderful of the Cuckoo's Nest and that you have like, you have all these character actors who are learning about and falling in line with an iconoclast in a situation that the iconoclast doesn't control. Mm-hmm. And it's a battle for control of the situation between authority figures an iconoclast and all of the people who want to toe the line with authority because they're afraid, but they also see the survival of the iconoclast and go, but how bad could things get? Like if I did decide to be myself, how bad could things get for the, in the case of cool hand Luke, they get really, really bad. Yeah. And, and in the case of, uh, Of Nicholson and One Flew of the Cuckoo's Not so great either. (laughs) Not so great either. Um, (laughs) But they, they felt very much like uh, companion pieces almost, like brother and sister films. And I, and I really liked this movie. I wouldn't have thought of that, but yeah. And they are, that one is often referred to as a, as a, being a Christ allegory film as well, which is, is pretty (laughs) potent, uh, potently loaded into the subtext as well. Um, so as upgrade of 4K, I didn't think this was a spectacular upgrade from the Blu-ray. It's still, very good. This is the best version of it that exists, no question. And there's audio commentary by Paul Newman biogra- biographer Eric Lax, and there's about a 30 minute uh, making of Cool Hand Luke that honestly I got about halfway through. But I was like, okay, I get it. This is not one of those ones that commands your attention as a. I mean, anything you need to know, anything from this that's interesting is also on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> so one of those. Anyway, uh, the third one from Warner Brothers is a film that I've always considered to be a real classic. Um, but I've seen maybe enough times now that I'm kind of like, I didn't really feel it. It's recent enough I didn't need to rewatch Rebel Without a Cause. So maybe I was less thrilled with it this time just because I've seen it so many times. But it's still, I always enjoy watching 1955. <laughs> unquestionably the best James Dean film of the mm-hmm. three movies he made in his brief life. Uh Yeah, it's it, it's a good movie. It's a really solid sort of, you know... <laughs> Teenage Rebellion film. And there were a lot of Teenage Rebellion films coming out around this time. The only other one that probably comes close is like the wild ones with Marlon Brando of being like up to this quality, you know? Um, but this is still better. <laughs> Although the, the wild ones has the more iconic line. The, the yeah. what are you rebelling against? What do you got? <laughs> uh, but yeah, Dean is like initially playing sort of like a good guy in LA in 1950s. Um, we see at the beginning he's been arrested and taken to a, the juvie division of a police station for being drunk. Uh, and he meets up there at the station with, um, uh, Salminio, John Crawford, uh, you know, whose tale himself in real life is almost as tragic as, as, uh, as James Dean's Everybody, is. All three leads. Yeah. And Natalie Wood. So many own Natalie Wood and James Dean on all, that horrible young all, deaths. Yeah. And, and very tragic ends. Um, Natalie Wood, uh, is Judy who's, you know, hangs out with the cool kids in town, but who are basically hoods and toughs, but they're the cool hoods and toughs. They're at the top of the pecking order in this town, uh, who like to drag race and do stuff like that. But, uh, Jim's like, and to her, like, okay, I, she will be mine. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and his parents are constantly fighting with each other. Um, Judy's parents have problems as well. And her dad is very disapproving of her, calls her literally a dirty tramp at one point. And then Plato's father abandoned his family completely and his mother's almost never home. So she's in care of his housekeeper. You can see there's a message film going on being built here about parents. You need to actually 
pay attention to your kids and like have a, a life with them is clearly what this movie is aiming at saying. Like, yes, these kids fucked up, but guess whose fault that is? Um, and yeah, I mean, things go terribly wrong and go very bad for these characters eventually in this film, but it really is an iconically shot film for all three of these actors. It's arguably their finest performance and, and most memorable. And I, yeah, I, I always kind of rem- find this film so remarkable how well it's hold- held up over time. Um, yeah, I'm curious to know if John Golson is going to keep up his streak of agreeing with with Cox. I don't think I like it as much as you. Oh! <laughs> uh, I like the first half a lot, uh, a lot, a lot. Like, I think the opening, I think, I think it's pretty good. At some point, it becomes about the rivalry uh between the James Dean character and like the main bad kid. Yeah. And it kind of focuses a lot of its energies there. But I think that early on, I think the initial scene in the police station, I think some of the stuff where you're getting to know who these characters are, um, all the way up through the observatory stuff. I think all that is really, really promises. Like I was like, Oh, like this is, it's always good to see a classic where you're like, this is as good as I've always heard. Uh, that's not that, you know, that's that's not a, a blow-off to Maltese Falcon. Um, but it's always nice to watch a classic film and be like, wow, this is... Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. It I have to say it lost its grip on me about halfway through. Um, the more that the focus began to shift on the rivalry, the less interested I was in the moving pieces of the movie. Um, I think it's good. I don't. I didn't dislike it, but I thought the the opening, like maybe the first 30, 40 minutes of it, was phenomenally good, mm. and then it's just like fine. Okay, <laughs> so you're not that far. <laughs> no, no, no. It was it was like it was really really good to the point that I was so excited to watch it, and then it was just like oh, it it, it it's front loaded with uh, intrigue and character, and and then it has a plot to get through, and it's kind of like okay, I, I get it, it's got a plot to get through, but I, I all the setup of that plot was way more interesting to me. Mm, fair enough. Uh, so again, like Cool Hand Luke, this is one that the last transfer was great. This one is slightly better. It's just not as noticeable a difference as there was with Maltese Falcon, but still, this is the version to get. Uh, there's audio commentary, um, The Making of Rebel Without a Cause by author Douglas L. Rathgeb. Uh, and then there's actually a sizable amount of bonus features here that include wardrobe tests, screen tests, uh, black and white deleted scenes without sound, five of them, color deleted scenes without sound, 11 of them, uh, behind the cameras, three clips from those. There's a uh, Dennis Hopper, Memories from the Warner Lot. This was his first movie, and he goes back and he re- talks about that. Um, Rebel Without a Cause, Defiant Innocence, one short documentary, 36 minutes, and then a ja- 106-minute James Dean Remembered documentary. So Jim, Jim Bacchus minigames. <laughs> yeah, Rebel Without a Cause karaoke tracks, <laughs> yeah. you know. Now, um, if you haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause, it should be on your list of essential American films that you should have seen, you know? What did we watch? Did we watch Giant just a couple months ago? Yeah. Uh, I, I probably I liked, just found, I liked Giant more. I liked his performance in Giant more. I found so. out we're getting East of Eden soon. Oh, so. cool. So we'll, we'll complete. I'll make sure you get that one as well so you oh, can, nice. complete can complete your the, trilogy. Complete trilogy. Why not? <laughs> All right. Going modern, we're going to talk about the third movie in the trilogy of Magic Mike. Magic Mike's Last Dance. I did a lot of homework for this one, Chris. What do you mean? I took off all my clothes every single day for uh, like a month as I got into the shower. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. No, um, I actually hadn't seen uh, XL. 
So oh, okay. I watched the whole trilogy. I watched the first one and the second one to get me up to speed for this one. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, this one, like the first one was directed by Steven Soderbergh. The, this one is directed by Steven Soderbergh. I can't remember who directed the second one. Uh, it was his, it's one of his collaborators. Yeah. I don't know. It's like the, it's the guy who worked, he works as like, he's like first AD or something like that on the first Magic Mike. But I would say the first Magic Mike feels the most like a traditional Soderbergh film of the three. The second one is why a lot of fans prefer the second one because it's a lot more light and fluffy entertainment. It's faster moving. Uh, and the third one is Soderbergh going, is that what you guys want? I can do that. And basically does that. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> he's like, it's a save the rec center movie. It is. It totally is. It totally uh, but, is. Uh, We're going to shut down the play on uh, account of the stripping. It's like, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, here they've lost all the cast except for, uh, uh Channing Tatum. <laughs> they get a Zoom the, call <laughs> yeah, they get a Zoom call cameo. And he uh basically is just working as like a, a catering bartender. And he's there and he meets a very, very, very rich woman who's throwing this event, played by Selma Hayek, Maxandra. And when it's all sort of wrapping up, she's like, oh, yeah, this woman who was here recognized him and like from being a dancer and told her about it. It's like, how much for a lap dance? I'll give you a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And eventually he's like, okay. And so, of course, because he's Magic Mike, it just blows her mind completely. And she's like, you know, I think we're going to take you. We're going to make you into a huge star. We're going to, we're going to make you director of a theater I have in London, England. <laughs> I know. It's such and he a, goes to London. Such a ridiculous thing. They're doing a play and she's like, enough of this play. What if the play has stripping in it? And then the city is like, What's all this then? They're taking their knickers off, are they? And so they, they're like, we're going to shut down the theater. And they're like, if only people, and then the plot of it becomes, but if people could only experience the magic of male stripping, then everyone would see how great it is. Yeah. It's, and it's, that's what happened. It's magic Mike crossed over with the full Monty, basically. <laughs> um, and as the, it's, just such a thoroughly dumb and trite concept. And you know what, John? I enjoyed every minute. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had a fun as hell time watching this dumb, dumb Did you movie. see the theater? No, I okay. saw it here on Blu-ray. And I was like, there's a reason we call him Charming Potato. Because the dude, there's very few things that he doesn't significantly increase the quality of just by being in. Because he just exudes this crazy charm and here he does it again i'm like this is and then i was enjoying watching all the dance sequences that are like incredibly well choreographed with fantastic male dancers who are doing these great routines and you're like this is good like all that but you know i this is one of those things like i always compare films like you know the step-up movies i'm like they're they're all dumb but there are ones that are genuinely good in the same way that there are genuinely good 80s martial arts films you know Nobody's watching those movies for the incredibly complex plots and like, like, you know, well told stories and great acting. Yeah. They're telling them for the way that they're shot and for the quality of the physicality of the whole thing. And in some cases, like Jackie Chan movies, how funny they are. Case in point. That's what Magic Mike's like last dance is to me. It's not one of the best ones, but it's still pretty fun. So in, in revisiting <laughs> all these, Magic Mike 
felt the most like a quote-unquote real movie where it was like there's again it comes back to like there's the rhythm and the edits and the way scenes linger and how they're shot and the way characters behave that it feels real it feels like a legit movie where it's a legit movie first and also there's male dancing in it yeah now the second movie is like flips that and is like it's a an excuse for male dancing hanging on a thread of a real movie. Yes. It's like, this is like, it's a supplement piece to like, <laughs> oh, you like the guys, you didn't get to spend enough time with the guys, well, here's a whole movie about the guys. Right. But it's kind of formless, sort of plotless. Yeah. And then, and then that was the one that you heard people like really, fan the Magic Mike fandom, of which there is a Magic Mike fandom, respond really well to. And then they take that away and they saddle it to like this cornball, like mid eighties cable TV plot about <laughs> like, it, again, this whole idea of like, oh, if, but if only they could experience male dancing for themselves, <laughs> right. we would change their mind. Yeah. And then they do and they do. Yeah, like, I mean, no, it's, that's not a spoiler, but it's this, sort of like, there's a scene in this one with like, oh, there's the one woman that if we could change her yeah. mind on the planning commission, yeah, they we could get, a, and get they, sign off on it. They have like a, like a plotted heist sequence to like encounter her on a city bus and, and, dance, and on the bus. dance for her. And like with a whole, like, like, what do they call those things where people do that in public where they like, oh, have, flash mob. It's a flash mob basically yeah. for just for her benefit. And of course she is like, Oh, and her mind is blown and she's now hundred percent. And yeah. you're just like, it's, it's ridiculous. It is one of the, in every sense, it's a save the rec center movie. Like in every sense it is yeah. like pulling from those movies from the eighties, like Point after point, and that's okay with me. I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm okay with it. It, I watched it all, didn't I? (laughs) I don't know. I ate the whole thing. Um, I'm I'm okay with it. It's just real dumb, and especially coming off the other two, it's sort of like... It's the least of the three, Yeah, Especially if you're doing this thing where you're like, you're getting rid of the thing that people like the most, which was... The other and the interplay with the supporting cast. You're removing the supporting cast and replacing them with like... Salma Hayek and her cranky butler. Yeah. Like her kid. Yeah. Is part of it as well. It has very little to do. The butler yeah. should have been in it more as yeah. well because he was genuinely funny, but you're like, okay, why isn't he in it more? Or Salma why Hayek is. Why didn't they do like any other, like the. Give them a new crew of lovable. Like there are cast members in it, but. But they you, don't the have The film anything. is dis, completely disinterested in establishing the cast. Yeah. As characters. Agreed. I, it's like they could have at least given us some colorful British well, why strippers. Why didn't the whole cast go. With him to London, or call him in once he knew, once he knew that, uh, once he knew that that was happening and yeah. he was going out there. Yeah, why was it the Zoom call? I like, need I my have cast. this opportunity for you guys. I need my crew. Yeah, I gotta have my crew. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, that's really what's missing here. The main because th- if that was there, this would probably be about the same level as the second one for me. Yeah. But that you really feel poignantly the loss of those characters who you kind of grew to love over the previous two films. I know it's weird. We're talking all seriously about the Magic Mike films, but this is the world that we live in. You know, I mean, I I can get some. I can go serious into the Fast and the Furious movies for like hours. So, and why? Why should? Why? This is a deathbed. Looking back, oh, I wasted my life. They should cross them over. (laughs) They really should. I mean, they haven't brought Channing Tatum into the Fast and the Furious films yet. Yeah, when are we getting the Magic and the Furious? (laughs) Uh, There's a EPK six minute Magic Mike's new moves look. uh, Basically, a lot to do with how like they plan the stage performances 
And then there's, speaking of the woman on the bus that they do the flash mob for, there's Edna Expanded for eight minutes, which is a longer full sequence that has more fantasy moments in it. Yay. You know, which I I didn't watch before, but now that I see that it's there, I'm going to be watching it because that is actually a very fun sequence. Yeah, okay, it's dumb as hell, but I still enjoyed it. You know, I actually was curious, I was... With this next movie, it was released on Criterion, Triangle of Sadness, which, of course, was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, um, and critics, like, raved about it, although it definitely was not agreed on across the board being a great movie. I personally know people who really disliked it, but I was kind of shocked that the guy who reviewed it for one of the most prestigious Blu-ray sites out there, Blu-ray.com, fucking not only despised it, but shit all over every critic who did like it. He pulled a whole, well, y'all are just stupid in his review. I'm like, yeah, don't ever do that. Don't ever play the whole, I'm a smarter critic than those other critics card. That's just lame. And you suck for doing it, quite frankly. And I'm not just saying that because I'm one of the critics who really like Triangle Sadness a lot. Mm -hmm. It worked for me. It is a mess. I don't disagree that this film, uh, directed by Rupert Ostlund, who did, uh, Force Majeure in 2014, was big breaking out film that was remade, I, f- I forget as what, with Will Ferrell a couple years later, uh, and The Square, uh, a couple years after that. This is, was released with much anticipation. He's kind of a weirdo art director, uh, maybe not as weird as the guy who did The Lobster and all that, Jorgen, Yorgos Lanthimos, but you know, He's in that same field. I would say working in that same field of weirdness. This following a, a lug, super luxury cruise with very wealthy guests and an Instagrammy well, uh, celebrity couple who are on this cruise and how everything goes horribly wrong on it. I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. I resisted seeing this in the theater because I heard ahead of time. There's like a 25 minute vomit scene in this movie. It and was, was actually like, easier to take than I had heard. Yeah. Its I, reputation was such. Where I thought it was, I thought that was actually going to be more gross than what yeah, it was. I thought it was going to be the thing that was like, okay, I can't stand it when movies think it's, it's so funny when people puke and poop themselves. Like in here, it actually was pretty fucking funny. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, this is actually, it flies by because it's a great sequence. <laughs> um, it, it's a very socio-political film, but it doesn't care. Uh, that much about that either. It's all there and on the surface. Like Woody Harrelson's the captain of the boat who is a outspoken, out, total alcoholic who likes to, who doesn't understand Marx, but is constantly quoting him. Who's a, you know, outright socialist. And there's a, a guy on the boat who's a Russian oligarch who, who made all his money from poop slash fertilizer, who is a pro capitalist. And the two of them having an argument about these two things, which is better while the ship is literally sinking. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's the yeah. most not hiding it metaphor I've ever seen. And, and maybe any movie ever. And the director knows it. And you're supposed to be laughing at that in and of itself. You know, um, I think that the third act where the whole thing, they end, everybody ends up on our Island gets a little more confused because it's sort of playing with Lord of the flies and it's not as strong as the first two acts, but I still enjoyed this. It's just not a normal narrative on any level. Yeah, I think the issue with the third act is one that he 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 sets up the stuff in the first couple to sort of introduce this thesis that in a power vacuum, if the roles are reversed, like someone's going to fill that void. Yeah. So it's a cynic, very cynical point of view because the idea for most of this movie is there's like the haves and the have-nots and the haves lord over the have-nots. But the movie's 
the what the what the movie wants to say is that if the roles were reversed, the have-nots would be just as bad. If the have-nots were in power, they would be just as crappy as the haves. I don't have to agree with the movie to like it, though. Yeah. And, like, I don't agree with that thesis. I think I'm too optimistic for that thesis. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm I with you on that, too. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was way too heavy-handed with trying to make its point in the third act about that. And yeah. I don't necessarily agree. But even the third act, in and of itself, as it, as it feels almost like a separate movie from the first, the, like, two-thirds of it, yeah. is still very entertaining. Yeah. I, no, I really, really like this movie. Um, I think it's, I do think it's really funny. It has a lot of uh, uncomfortable humor uh, as well, where there's scenes where you're just like, you're either laughing or you're mad. Like, yeah. there's no middle ground. It's either, either the movie is actively making you angry or you're laughing. Yeah. And, like, for me, I was laughing. Uh, and, again, I, I think if there's any takeaway, and I think, I don't want to get, like, soapboxy, but people, people do this with fictional characters, too. Um, the example that comes to mind is like the, uh, Havoc from X-Men. Rick Remender got in trouble like years back for having Havoc from X-Men go, Hey, don't call us the M word to somebody. And people were like, Oh, that's like Havoc wouldn't say that for reasons X, Y, and Z. And, and it being like offensive to put in a character's mouth. And I'm sort of like, if humans are flawed, then characters can be flawed. And it's okay for a writer to write flawed characters and you don't have to agree with what the writer puts in the character's mouth because it's a character that's saying that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's been a weird handcuffing of writers that, like, content has to be... I'm I'm left-leaning. I'm very liberal. And as much as there is extreme right, there is extreme left. And mm-hmm. there's an idea that anything that seems like it could condone something is automatically dangerous and bad and everything should align to my particular worldview right uh and i think that characters can be shitty and it doesn't mean that the author of those characters thinks that uh that's good behavior or condones it or whatever a recent there's a recent meme going around actually about the movie happiness the todd salons movie yeah where it's like the most shocking movie in the 90s is a movie that wants you to sympathize with a child molester. And I'm like, I've seen it, and you're not really supposed to sympathize with him. Yeah. Like, he's he's a gross piece of garbage. Like, I think the movie makes a pretty good case for that, too. It just makes him human. I think there are also lots of movies that are, the, the theme is, I contain multitudes, yeah. right? Which yeah. is like, yeah, like, let's not forget that the worst of us also is still a human being. Yeah. Like, So I'd say all of that to, like, if any, if any, if this is, then this is soapboxing. Any, if any listener can take anything that I'm saying about this movie to heart, it would be you do not have to agree with the central premise of a movie to like a movie. Yeah. I, I do not think that its politics are correct. I do not align to its worldview. But I liked the movie. I think it's funny. Yeah. I, I would hope that in a power vacuum that the have-nots would, would display the kind of empathy and wisdom that comes from being a have-not. Right. Uh, as opposed to filling a power vacuum and being just as crappy. That's my hope. He doesn't see that. And that's fine. Uh, yeah, I'm not but, as cynical as he is. But for the younger listeners, like you guys, it's okay to like stuff that is does not align to who you are as yeah, a person. 100%. It is okay. You know, 
I, we all like the John Wick movies, but does that mean you're okay with like a professional assassins murdering hundreds of people? If they're fine, <laughs> all the John Wick assassins are fine. So picture the other day, Keanu Reeves wearing a shirt. It's like his his name is his character in John in John Wick should have been named Keanu Greaves. That was he's wearing a shirt that said that. I was like, that's weird. Anyway, uh, this Criterion, it's on 4K. There's no bonus features on the 4K disc, but it comes with the Blu-ray version as well. Uh, there's exclusive program where filmmaker Johan J- Jonasson talks with Ruben Ostland, uh, the director here about the conception and production of this for about 20 minutes. There's Eric the Extra, which is uh, footage from the shooting of the vomit sequence previously mentioned here. Uh, for about 16 minutes. There's visual effects demonstration uh, for seven minutes. There's 13 minutes of deleted scenes and illustrated leaflet as well. But yeah, this is, um, I really think this was one of the most interesting films to come out last year. Yeah, it was and one of my favorites. It was, yeah, it was a must watch. It really was. And, you know, yeah, I like your, I like your, uh, your eloquence in your monologue there about kids. You don't have to agree with the movie to I like it. I just see it so much on like message boards and stuff. And I it's know. Just, it's like, things can art can be art it's it's not a proclamation um now i mean i don't want to like drum up too much this last release that we're talking about here but i feel like the best way to do it is the way the movie does it You know, I mean, one of the greatest John Williams scores of all time, of course, for the original Christopher Reeves starring Superman the movie, Superman 2, and then those other two Superman movies he was in. (laughs) That is now available on 4K in a box set. It's like, five movie collection. I'm like, five movies? And then it's because... Donner cut? It's both the original cut, the Richard Lester cut of Superman 2, and then the Richard Donner cut, which I didn't realize this till recently, was literally, like, over 50% of that film was completely reshot. By, by Donner. Like, so it is literally a different film. Um, and I only watched that version for this rewatch. <laughs> I did rewatch all four of them. I don't think it works as a movie. Really? The, I think it the works Donner as, one? I think it works as an experiment. I think it works as, I don't think it works on its own. I, it's, it's weird. I, I've always liked the Donner overcut better. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Richard Lester as a director just fine. Like, don't make no mistake. Richard Lester is a very good film director. I mean, he made what? A Hard Day's Night, right? I think the Donner cut is because they have to patch it with pieces from other Superman movies. Yeah. And I think the pacing is weird. Um, I, yeah, I just, I'm not the biggest Donner cut guy. All right. I think the stories, and I think the story of what it is is interesting. And I think it's, I think it's neat to look at after you. Sorry, my ads. That's his cats. They've just learned English. (laughs) That was weird. I don't know how that happened. That's okay. (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I I just, uh, I can't get into the Donner cut the same as I can the theatrical. Oh, man. I'm also very familiar with theatrical, too. Um, I like British kids with Southern daddies. I feel like since they put out the Donner cut, I've watched that. That's exclusively the one I've watched. So I maybe I just need to go back and watch Lester Cut. But the, the upshot is both of them are here Do on their own separate of, discs. Uh, they put multiple cuts of Superman 1? No. Okay. Uh, I don't think so. I think There's it's just the one. that weird one they released in theaters a few years ago where he gets shot in the chest with the machine guns when he's entering Lex's lair. That's like... <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think it's just this one. Just theatrical. Just the, the theatrical here, I think. Um 
you know, I remember when this first came out. I mean, I grew up watching the George Reeves television show. Um, was a big fan of the comic books. Well, Spider-Man was still king, but still. Uh, and I, I remember I, I made an enemy for life out of stupid kid shit because we were on our way there and my parents were picking up my friend to go see it. And I was sitting in the back with a thing with a hatchback and it had those things that look like oh shit handles, but they actually when you open the hatchback, they pull up into the ceiling. Yeah. So I was holding onto it like an oh shit handle when they opened it to let him in and my fingers were crushed in the ceiling. And we were going to go there on like opening night of this movie that every kid in the world was wildly excited for, of course. And I had to go to the hospital. And so we did not end up going to the movie and he never forgave me. (laughs) Stupid things that kids get mad at when you're like eight years old, which is how old I was when this happened and this movie first came out. You know, one of the things that always amazes me the most about Superman is all the stuff people don't know about it in general as a movie and the production process that went along, like the incredible stuff along the way to even get this made and that it's written by the same guy who wrote The Godfather, mm-hmm. you know, Superman 1 and 2, Mario yeah. Puzo. Prestige blockbuster filmmaking. Yeah. Um, there... Hmm... There needs to be a better making of the Superman films documentary. There should be a feature length movie at this point about the Christopher Reeve Superman era. Cause there's so many interesting stories that not only about just this, these films in particular and what happened during the making of them, but that really represent what was happening in Hollywood altogether at yeah. this point. Uh, sorry. My cat is stalking John Golson. No, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally attacking his head. Uh, um, and one of the most interesting ones here is that was that they originally sent a list. They said, DC sent us a list of who you are okay with of this list of actors that we're sending you that we can test for the role of Superman. And of the seven names that came back, one of the ones that made the shortlist was Muhammad Ali as Superman, right? Who was one of the biggest stars in the world back then. Like, you know, he was the athlete. I remember I used to have the giant size comic book, Superman fights Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Um, but just think about that for a minute and put that versus today. If tomorrow <laughs> they were like, we're taking our most popular black athlete and they're going to play Superman. The internet would literally explode. Like people would die because you can't have a black man playing the Superman. It wasn't even considered when they were casting this. In fact, apparently the main reason he didn't get it is because he can't act. What? <laughs> what a shocker. How Muhammad Ali never went on, went on to any acting roles. Um, but you know, as corny as a lot of things about these films are, and there's little bits of like, it's the time period. There's nothing to balance it against. There's no, there'd never been really any other superhero movies before this, except for the serials, right? Yeah. Which were decades beforehand. Um, this was really the first big budget take on doing a superhero movie. There are, <laughs> there's some unfortunate missteps here and there, but it's crazy how much stuff still holds up and is just wonderful. And a lot of that is the just tremendous casting of Christopher Reeve as Superman, who is the definition of the big blue boy scout on screen of uh, the very iteration of this character, which should be the only iteration if you ask me, but you know, sorry, Henry Cavill, <laughs> uh, and Margot Kidder as, you know, the perfect Lois Lane. Um, and, 
points as well to not a comic book Lex Luthor, but a fun Lex Luthor played by Gene Hackman. Yeah. Uh, who no way resembles the comic book version of this character, but I, they've done very few outside of the animated series that do rep- resemble them. So, uh, I know you must be big fans of the series. I do like it. I saw Superman theatrically as a kid and Superman two is the first movie I remember waiting in line for, mm-hmm. um, as a kid. Like it's the, it's not my earliest movie memory, but it's the first time I can remember like we went to Gulfgate in Houston and we stood in line and waited for Superman two. Um, yeah, it's, uh, when you have something that's like that ingrained in you, and also as a comic book fan, it being like for the longest time, Superman 2 was like the gold standard for, oh, yeah, like a comic book action movie. Yes. Because you had, you had him fighting these other Kryptonians. You know, it's, it looks a little quaint nowadays. It actually looks like nowadays I was actually shocked with the second one how much product placement there is in the big action scenes like they're literally throwing each other into advertisements yeah like knocking each other into, into coca-cola ads and marlboro ads and everything else um but yeah i love i love the first one and i really 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 like the second one and i find the third one very strange um it ostensibly tries to be a comedy it's almost completely unfunny None of the jokes land. None. None of them. <laughs> it has maybe the worst opening credits sequence I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. The third one does. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's almost like a Muppet movie. It's yeah, like no, nothing 100%. but continual pratfalls and paint cans. It's just, on a, people. you know, it's like the credits while, like, you watch these characters go through just a whole, like, like yeah. a Rube Goldberg series of pratfalls. Yeah. almost. But when you're a little kid, stuff burns in your mind, like evil Superman and Superman having the fight with himself and yeah. stuff like that that's, like, and still indelible. Computer movie, robot lady. Yeah. Even <laughs> if the movie's, like, kind of crappy and overblown. And it's crappy. And, and doesn't really hit its marks. And then four. Oh, boy. This was my first time to watch four. What? You never watched A Quest for Peace I've before? I've never watched A Quest for Peace oh, before. Oh, boy. And, and let me tell you, like, the other thing that's funny is... My parents, I guess, when I was a kid, had an awareness of reviews, and they wouldn't take me to go see Superman 4, because <laughs> they didn't take me to see 3 or 4, because they'd heard they were bad. Yeah. Uh, they were right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> they didn't take me to see Superman 3, they didn't take me to see Superman 4, no matter how, how bad I wanted to see them, they wouldn't take me to go see them. Um, and I, I've I've watched the beginning of Superman 4 before, but I've never watched it all the way through. Um, yeah, it, it earns its reputation, it's really bad. I don't know what happened quite between Superman three and Superman four. It fell in the hands of Golden Globus. Yeah, they had to they had to concede that the movie had to be about nuclear dearmament because Christopher Reeve, kind of like with Alien three, where Sigourney Reaver's like, "I'll come back, but there's going to be no guns in my movie." And they're like, "Well, how do we write a movie with no guns?" And they have to work from that point. Uh-huh. It's like Christopher Reeve was like, "I'll come back, but it has to be explicitly about nuclear disarmament." So then they're like trying to write backwards from Christopher Reeve's demand. Um, it it introduces new characters, because I don't know what was going on with Margot K- and Margot Kidder's life at the time, but it introduces Mariel Hemingway as the love interest. Yeah. And then you have, like, John Cryer, who's just terrible. Just, just terrible. As is the guy who plays, like, Nuclear Man. Oh, my God. And, and because there's no budget, like, the special effects are freaking awful. And I'm sorry... 
people talk all the time about like I like the Superman movies, but I it's weird that Superman can rewind time. And it's weird in the second one that he has like a cape that turns into cellophane and can wrap people up. <laughs> yeah. That's all well and good because nothing is as weird as Superman making bricks appear out of his <laughs> eyes, Chris. He rebuilds <laughs> yeah. like a wall by like shooting bricks Did out of his eyes. The third and fourth one both set makeup brand new Superman <laughs> powers out of whole cloth, like just for the could oh, be cool he if he did this. Bricks. And the fourth one, you're like, wait, what? How is he? Okay, that's because Superman. Superman can just can do anything at this point. And he like, shoots <laughs> bricks out of his eyes. <laughs> right? And all I'd ever heard over the years was how bad Nuclear Man was. Yeah. And I was like, how come I haven't heard about him shooting bricks out of his <laughs> eyes? How is that a power? How do you, how, like, so the cape cellophane thing, I'm like, all right, but we don't know. It's some Kryptonian fabric. So maybe that's what it does. <laughs> the rewinding the earth. Okay, they show him do it. Not so, once, but twice. Yeah. So, so it has some pseudo-scientific explanation. But there's no nothing that makes me think that Superman can look at an object and make a brick appear. Yeah. And yet he does. Oh. He makes bricks materialize by... It's brick vision. You never heard of brick, brick vision? vision. <laughs> it's freaking brick vision in this movie and he's like, a brick house i've heard stories about gene hackman's gene hackman on sets uh-huh. and how he's he his he has a reputation for being like prickly and unapproachable yeah and i can't imagine what his demeanor was like on the set of superman 4 now he comes across fine he's he's playing the same legs he played in the first two mm-hmm. but just knowing how just hearing stories about how he is, I was like, man, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for some of the conversations with Gene Hackman uh, yeah. between takes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, agreed. Gene Hackman is mysteriously in all of these to, at some point, even if he's completely irrelevant to the story, like yeah. in three. Um, and he's so embarrassing that, and you know what? There's was originally 45 minutes cut out of Superman 4, 31 minutes of which are have been dredged up and included. And there's, yeah, they're not making the film better. But if you're watching it for the badness, by all means, watch the deleted scenes because they are just as oh, big really? and as stupid as the uh. other stuff in here. Um, lots of bad special effects. Uh, more extra Gene Hackman being terrible. Um, yeah, four is like among the worst superhero movies ever made, even today, where there have been plenty of other ones I'm making that list. It's still in the top five easily. You still have Christopher Reeve as Superman, and that's the only saving grace. Yeah. Yes. No. Yes, it is. Um, now this is the exact same bonus features that were included in the previous, uh, uh, Superman Blu-ray box set that came out like two years ago or something. There's a bonus feature in that set that's one of my all-time favorite bonus features Mm -hmm. and it's the screen tests with christopher reeve and different women Mm. because there's been some fandom type geek boy complaints that well why didn't they hire a a quote-unquote prettier lois lane like (sighs) why you know uh margot kidder is maybe not somebody's first choice for like why wasn't it faye dunaway or somebody else from the 70s that was like more model pretty and if you watch that um if you watch that footage of the screen test in Superman 1, they have palpable chemistry in the screen test. Mm. 
And you totally, 100% get why Margot Kidder plays the part. They have Jane Seymour read with him. They have some other people read with him. Ann Archer, Leslie Ann Warren, Stockard Channing. You know, I mean, like a a lot of very beautiful women. And they're all people who, they read the lines fine enough, but there's no chemistry. And there's immediate chemistry between the two of them. And you can totally, it's so cool because a lot of, a lot of fans sometimes wonder, well, why did they cast so-and-so over so-and-so? And it's like, this is a great example to go back and reference, you know, whether it's Superman related or not, this is a great example to go back and reference and, and watch the screen test. If you're a film fan to just see how different it is when somebody that you think quote unquote is a better actress. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not about who's quantifiably better. Sometimes it's simply about how do these two people interact with each other yeah. on screen and yeah, hundred percent. You get why they cast. Mark I mean, Kidder. I don't know how you could watch the first Superman and uh, and not see oh, it's that on the screen. Yeah, it's on the screen. Um, so, it, to put a long story short, there are a lot of bonus features in this set that are the same ones as before. But you know, if you don't have to have the previous set, yeah, this is well worth getting. The only one annoying thing to me is the last set also came with Superman Returns, mm-hmm. and this one doesn't. So now I can't get rid of my Blu-ray set. <laughs> I'm like, God damn it! Why didn't you just include Superman Returns on this one? So I could have. Okay, now I can give that to somebody, and I just have the 4K upgrade. Really annoying, but because uh, Superman uh-huh. Returns is much better than three or four. Man, I just got done talking to you about Brian Singer movie starring Kevin Spacey. I don't want to get into all that again. <laughs> Well, that is it for this week, and now comes the time that John picks what our pick of the week is going to be. And we already discussed the possibility of the Assassination Bureau. Any other week it would be Assassination Bureau, but, but this I has, think it's Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, I was going to say, this has Cool Hand Luke and Magic Mike's Last Dance, so it's a hard call. Yeah, I would say Cool Hand Luke. Cool Hand Luke, fair yeah. enough. The Superman stuff, I mean, it balances the scales. It's sort of like, Superman 1 has been out in 4K for a really, really long time. And while the transfers are good, they're they're they've got that like it's sort of like yeah they're a little brighter if you have HDR on a 4K set yeah but it's not like they're so clean that they it's not like the alien it's Alien to me or 2001 are still the gold standard of like 70s movies that when you see them in 4K you're like holy crap like it looks like it could have come out yesterday yeah and this still has like this kind of like fuzziness softness. It's not even just film grain. It's kind of just the way that these movies were shot back then. Yeah. Um, that it, it, it is one of those, it looks as best as it ever did before, but that's not a massive uptick over the Blu-ray. Um, I agree with that, but that's why I can't necessarily give that the pick of the week. Although it is still a pretty enticing set. It is, but it doesn't have Superman returns in it. So, and it does have Superman. (laughs) You want to see a long arm Otis? (laughs) Well, anyway, thank you. Is there anything you want to promote? People, you should be checking this out because John Golson's involved. Uh, new Halloween Man stuff or I comics. Have? What or... do I have? I feel like I do, but um, no, it's over. We just, we just, I was, I was, we just concluded a Indiegogo funding to shoot these three little films, and, and that's what's happening. So I can't promote the Indiegogo because it's already closed. Oh, fair enough. So, All right, so next I time. I can't promote Dallas Fan Expo because I just got done with that. If you want, uh, I could give my address after the, after the show. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you just peek through my window. There you go. And I watch me sleep. Yeah, you'll wave. I at use a CPAP wave. machine. It's pretty cool. I feel like <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt is Cobra Commander. <laughs> You'll be like, oh my God, I knew he was an alien. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. I like, to, I, like, I like to put it on and talk in the Bane voice to my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear that. Come on. Talking about, oh, the Bane voice like this. 
I'm going to sleep now, Wendy. Put my CPAP on. <laughs> so, I, I can see that. Yeah.